Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. This is the latest in the extraordinary Cambridge University series, which they have gifted us this year at the festival, for which we are eternally grateful. Um, this is an amazing lecture, and uh, our speaker will also take questions from you and is happy to talk to you afterwards in the bookshop, but I know that you're going to have the most amazing time. Um, the history of islands, particularly on this island, as it begins to redefine its relationship to the nearest landmass, is ever more vital and fascinating. Please give a very warm welcome to Sujit Siva Sundaram. Thank you very much. It's, it's really wonderful uh, to be here, and, and thank you for making the time uh, for this lecture. So what I'm hoping to do in the next um, 45 minutes or so is um, to take material out of a book uh, which I'm currently writing, uh, which is on the so-called age of revolutions uh, in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Uh, so really important to emphasize at the start uh, is that I'm working with a definition of the age of revolutions uh, as the period from around, say, 1780, uh, end of the 18th century, uh, to about 1850, uh, the middle of the 19th century. So for historians, the age of revolutions is seen to be the period that birthed the modern world. Uh, if we want to think of a system of nation states, uh, if we want to think uh, of a globally connected set of communities, uh, if we want to think about a common language of politics, what it means uh, to be on the left uh, or to be on the right, um, well, this is a sort of very key period. Um, also, really, really important um, uh, uh, for the definition of individual selfhood uh, and communal identity even around concepts of nationality or race and gender, or heritage, uh, for instance. So the general story that historians tell about the Age of Revolutions is that it all began with events in the Atlantic world, like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, or even here, the Industrial Revolution. So one could turn to, to very important historians uh, to provide evidence for that. For instance, there's R.R. R. Palmer, who wrote this book, the age of democratic revolution. And he said the whole movement was one common to the Atlantic world. Oh, there's a British Marxist historian, Eric Hobsbawm. The explosive power of the age for him spewed out, and it's a wonderful metaphor because we still think about revolutions like this, out of a regional volcano in the North Atlantic. So the implication of that argument is that, well, it all begins in the Atlantic world around 1800, um, and one could cite Palmer. All revolutions since 1800 in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa have learnt from the 18th century revolution of Western civilization. So in other words, the soul of the world is crafted in the Atlantic, and then from there it diffuses, it disseminates around the world, as other parts of the world, Asia or Africa, for instance, in the period of decolonization, learn from the age of revolutions uh, in the Atlantic world in this period. 
So what I want to do in this lecture is really to turn that history inside out. And of course, I want to start with the islands of the Indian and Pacific Oceans and the islanders who inhabited these seas. So the Pacific, and sometimes the Indian Ocean as well, is cast as a furthest frontier in this period. The idea really was that this was a place where the, where the world was turned out inside out, or upside down even. It was Antipodean. There were strange creatures who inhabited this world. Um, there could even be cannibals in this part of the world who inhabited these watery terrains. Also prevalent was this sort of idea that there might be kind of pirates here, people who conducted ruthless practices of commerce, which were not consistent with the way Europe traded with the rest of the world. The Indian Ocean, of course, was often cast as an Islamic sea, full of religious ideas which threatened Europe. Traditions of the romantic and the picturesque dominated accounts of the Pacific here, sort of wonderful, very rare uh, children's game where you're going to take out the pieces um, and it's Captain Cook uh, in the middle and he's surrounded by Pacific Islanders uh, and the kind of iconic image from the period of the sort of island as it arises from the sea, this sort of paradisical place uh, where you could find yourself, uh, especially if you were coming from the cluttered civilization of the West. So this is the time, of course, that we also see then the rise of Protestant Britain with Christianity, a whole set of series of ideas, Christianity, free trade, uh, the liberalization of labor, the spread of the press with the liberalization of labor. Of course, we think of slavery and the debate over slavery. And all of that just kind of comes and lands on these island societies as a sort of fully worked out, or, or a program of modernization, which is worked out in situ in these islands. So the claim I'm sort of then sort of developing here is that though these places are a further frontier, and in some ways the antithesis of the modern, contradictorily, these islands were sites that birthed the modern world. They're launch pads, if you will, for the modern program and imperial and global projects at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th centuries. They're rich in biodiversity, of course, and so immediately we find naturalists and scientists who arrive in these islands to study um, orders, kinds, genders, races, um, a whole series of sort of plottings, if you will, which arise out of these newfound locations in the Indian and Pacific Oceans at the dawn of our modern times. They're also very contained sites. And because they're contained sites, you can you know, conduct disciplinary projects or reformist projects. Islands can become prisons. Um, they can become sites of quarantine. They also witness awful war at times in this period. And we'll be turning shortly to one place where one sees the decimation of indigenous peoples. They're targeted by missionaries um, as laboratories um, for programs of conversion, which can then later be applied to continental uh, land masses. They're also yet in this period, despite all the science and reason which comes to sort of impinge on them, mythologized by indigenous peoples and ocean-facing peoples of various kinds 
who cast them into various different accounts of origin. So in order to illustrate this intensification, really, of this program of modernization, the birthing of the modern world in island societies, what I'm going to do is I'm going to island hop uh, between four islands, Tonga, Sri Lanka, Tasmania, and Singapore. And in each case, what I want to do is I want to outline some of the contours of this period which birthed our modern world, some of the critical ingredients of modernity which come to be in these island places. And that just gives you a sort of outline of where I'm headed. I'm going to start with Tonga, an island cultural encounter. We're going to go to Sri Lanka, an island state-making. We're going to look at Tasmania, an island total war, and Singapore, an island free trade. So the first stop is Tonga, where I uh, recently was a few months ago. Of course, it's over there. Um, and um, we're going to go back to 1806 when the Port-au-Prince was set on fire in December 1806 by Tongans. So it was a 1,500 uh, ton English vessel, which the English had actually taken from the French, and it was involved in whaling. Another aim uh, of this ship was to raid Spanish and French targets, which is very much in keeping with this early 19th century moment. So as the ship was taken over by the Tongans, Fire spread across the ship, and the guns that remained became heated and went off one by one. By this time, by the time that the guns uh, were going off, in the heat, the Tongans had taken everything that they wanted off the ship. And I want to argue that they, the Tongans, demonstrated extraordinary creativity. The raiding of the ship is, of course, a real act, but one could think of it almost like a kind of proxy, if you will, for the nature of cultural encounter in this critical period of the late 18th and 19th centuries. Because even as the Port-au-Prince was ripped apart and inflamed, the culture, economics, and politics of Tonga were remade. So the key asset who was raided, if you will, was this man, William Mariner, who was adopted by a chief, Finau Ulukalala II. Mariner wrote, in the evening, they set fire to her in order to get more easily afterwards at the ironwork. All the great guns were loaded, and as they began to be heated by the general conflagration, they went off one after another, producing a terrible panic among all the natives. So it was Mariner who then explains to Ulukalala II that the silver discs that were on the Port-au-Prince and that had actually come off the Port-au-Prince and been sort of chucked across the water and bounced across the water, that this is money. Um, and they're called flat stones, panga, and panga remains the currency of Tonga. Barrels of gunpowder and cannon were taken ashore, and Mariner then, together with 15 other Britons, participated in a raid that Ulukalala initiated against the political center of these islands in Tonga Tapu and weapons taken from the Port-au-Prince were involved in this raid. Here's a picture from Tonga now, um, and you can see that the weapons from the Port-au-Prince are still on display in, outside the building, uh, which is the closed-down British High Commission. One thing which was not raided was the whale oil, which just leaked out, and the story goes that there was a man who almost drowned in the episode, um, a, a Tongan man called Taufa Ahau, and he went on then, eventually, to outdo Ulukalala, the, the patron of Mariner, 
in the wars that set in in Tonga in this period as European weapons spread. And he became the future George I of Tonga, a, monarchic, a, a royal line which lasts until the present. So we see the consolidation of currency, we see the extension of warfare, we see the creation of a new political vocabulary, and we see the spread of these weapons. So this gets me to a very interesting feature of Tonga in these years, and which is central to the argument I wish to mount here. Cultural encounter in the Pacific was, in some ways, a system of raiding, which allowed islanders to deploy the forces of the outside world to their own ends. And perhaps a key area where this happens is around the idea of kingship. For it's not only here, but really across the Pacific where we see the consolidation of kingly lines at this period of time, where there were no kings and queens in the European sense before this point in time. Before the Port-au-Prince was raided and set on fire in 1806, there had been a long civil war in Tonga between rival chief, chiefly lineages. Chiefs had been fighting later over connections with Europeans. And so what's happening really is a consolidation of a political unit, uh, a more centralized political unit with the ascent of George I of Tonga. What's also happening is the emergence of a market, because before this time, objects were not marketized. They didn't retain a value on the basis of the work that had been put into making them. Rather, value was determined by the rank and status of the producer of the object. So it was no wonder, really, that they really wanted European objects, given that it was the person who made the object who then gave meaning to it and value to it. And so what's happening then with the spread of all of these sorts of things that come from Europe and elsewhere, including America, uh, the Americas, is the remaking of Tonga. Taf Ahau, the man who almost drowned in the whale oil um, was also baptized um, in 1831, and he uses the British missionaries who are in Tonga at the time to unify Tonga. That too generates a shift uh, in the social and political organization of Tonga. Because before this time, chiefs had traced their lineage to the gods, but now we have you know, the missionaries in charge of the word, in charge of the sacred realm, and Tafarahau as George I, the keeper of the law. So just to go back to, Mar uh, to Marina and Ulukalala, here is uh, Ulukalala as cited by Marina. Oh, that the gods would make me, and he didn't, of course, he, he wasn't George I in the end, it was his rival, would make me king of England. There is not an island in the whole world, however small, but that I would then subject to my power. The King of England does not deserve the dominion he enjoys, possessed of so many great ships. Why does he suffer such petty islands as those of Tonga, continually to insult his people with acts of treachery? Were I he, would I send tamely to ask for yams and pigs, the sorts of things that you'd ask when you arrived at an island? No, I would come with the front of battle and with the thunder, the guns of Britain. So what we're seeing here is not simply the consolidation, if you will, of a new political system and a new system of economy here out in the Pacific, but also the placement of all of that, as one sees here, in relation to Europe. There's a kind of recognition of the placement of the Tongan kingly line 
to be, or the Tongan kind of changing political scene in Tonga in relation to the King of England, the politics of England. So time to island hop, and now I'm going to sort of draw on a, a book which came out uh, a few years ago uh, on Sri Lanka, which is called Islanded, and here is Sri Lanka uh, in the middle of uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, and um, in some ways, the events that I'm going to kind of highlight here are the inversion, really, of the events of Tonga. Because in, in Tonga, we saw the consolidation of a monarchic line in keeping with what's happening right across the Pacific in this period. But in Sri Lanka, what we have is actually uh, the evacuation, the defeat of the last kings who had ruled in the interior of the island, in the middle dot, out of the middle dot there, termed Kandy. And the deportation of the last king, Sri Vikramarajasinghe, who's shown here in an indigenous image, uh, who's sent off by the British to South India, where he later dies in captivity in 1832. Now, just to give you a sort of quick um, context for all of this, what's happened, again, the age of revolutions is really significant because um, the Dutch have been in here, and they have governed a coastal strip of the island. Um, the British then come and take that coastal strip of the island because they're worried that the French will come in uh, in the age of revolutions. So they take over the coastal strip. This is 1796. Um, they, you know, they experiment with you know, how to govern it. They try to govern it from southern India, from the East India Company's territories in Madras. That doesn't work. It finally becomes, and this is really significant, a crown colony. Because a crown colony is a space where you can actually kind of experiment with governance much more intensively in this period. It's not under the East India Company. And so from the crown colony, it's by 1815 that the interior kingdom of Kandy falls. Then what happens... Um, and this now is in keeping with what happens in Tonga, the whole place becomes one political unit. But it's not a political unit under an indigenous king, like in Tonga. It's a political unit under the British crown, because it's a crown colony. So whereas there had been multiple kingdoms over the long durée, here we have a kind of centralized state, a bureaucratic state, which is governing the whole place as one kind of unit. And so what you also have is, you know, a whole series of experiments, programs of reform, um, the evacuation of the kingly line even, things that you can't necessarily do over the wide expanse of India, a continent, but which you can do in a smaller space, deforestation later, um, like Sri Lanka, because it's an island. So it's sort of in a laboratory, if you like, for the state. Uh, people who watch in India don't use the word colonialism, to talk about India in this period. They talk about Sri Lanka as you know, colonialism, the colony. Um, and so this is an interesting sense in which this is really the colony, which then sets the template for what happens later uh, in other parts uh, of South Asia. Um, so in wars with the interior kingdom of Kandy, um, one thing which I'd like to highlight is this fascination with the indigenous. So the British are motivated in these wars uh, with the idea that this kingdom in the middle is divided. It's divided between people who are indigenous and people who are foreign. And the king is a foreigner because he is Malabar, which is the term which is used in the period. And so what they try to do is to get rid of the king and all of his relatives and send them back to India. Now, Malabar is the term which later becomes Tamil. Uh, in Sri Lanka. And so what we get then is this sort of form of state making actually redefining within it its regimes of counting and et cetera and census and so forth, 
the notion of ethnicity. So just to go back to Srivikramaraj Singer, who's here, and to give you a sort of story from one of the sources that I've been working with, we have the account written by William Granville, who took this king and the entourage around him across to India in HMS Cornwallis in 1816, the year after the Kingdom of Kandy fell. And it's a very colorful journal of the monarch's conduct whilst on board this ship. In this journal, the king is presented as really being unable to come to terms with the loss of his status. And I want us really to keep in mind what happens in Tonga in hearing this, um, because in Tonga, of course, we saw that there was the consolidation of a royal line. So on the 8th of February, 1816, quote, he fixed his eyes on the ocean before him, an element altogether new to him, and seemed to think on the immutability of power and his own changeable fortunes. So in the journal, the king was cast as Malabar first, even in his appearance. Um, he was seen to be, uh, when unclothed, he was examined unclothed without his ceremonial clothing, seen to be of, you know, not of a high caste. And he was cast as a despot, which was a sort of term in circulation in the period for someone who was not a good ruler a sort of oriental despot who kind of lost his temper at will, didn't know how to kind of rule uh, in a reasonable way, and that was one way to justify uh, invasion uh, like this. Um, other ships take across uh, to India um, a series of other kind of Malabar people from Kandy, and what's really interesting is to see the kind of regime of tabulation that then happens, the paperwork that goes with this kind of these exiles uh, uh, to India. Caste, is noted down, what country they come from is noted down, um, how long they've been in Kandy uh, is noted down, etc., etc. And that's it. some of them are put into Vello Fort, which is here, others of them, this is in South India, uh, and others of them are dispersed across South India. The reason I kind of point to that is because this classificatory project, Buddhist monk, Malay woman, Muslim, Kandyan woman, Etc. That sort of classificatory project, which is aesthetic here, but which is also very much about paperwork and tabulation and columns, documenting arrivals and removals and so forth, is in keeping with the nature of the state, which we see in Sri Lanka and the evacuation of the kingly line. Now, of course, um, you know, it's very difficult in this period, perhaps even now, uh, to limit migration and to put people in places separating islanders and mainlanders under new regimes of state-making. This is a different regime of state-making in India, which is the East India Company here, the Crown. Uh, that's very hard to kind of orchestrate that sort of thing. Uh, there's a lot of kind of irritation between different regimes of state-making. And so we get in the British Library, you know, dozens of petitions from people who've been dispersed uh, in South India as Malabars, but to say, well, this is not our country. We don't belong here. Uh, we're stranded in a foreign country. Um, and as kind of, uh, and of course, it's sort of deeply problematic to think of the Malabars as recent arrivals in Sri Lanka, unlike the Sinhalese, who are the true indigenes, because there's been such a kind of complicated history of migration uh, between India uh, and Sri Lanka. So this is actually sort of a statement in some ways, or an indicator 
uh, of some degree of colonial ignorance and the kind of imposition of a kind of rigid boundary between belonging uh, and not belonging uh, across an island space and across a mainland space. So to sum summarize from these two cases of Sri Lanka uh, and Tonga before moving on and island hopping uh, once more, uh, what I'm suggesting is that islands were critical spaces for rethinking politics in the age of revolutions at the dawn of our times, but in really contradictory fashion. For on islands, monarchies could be revived in as much as they could be brutally excavated, evacuated, and replaced by intensive regimes of colonialism. Notions of belonging and not belonging could be recrafted at this moment, giving rise to new senses of ethnicity or even cultural purity. And that applies in Christian Tonga, where lots of people became Christians, or in British Crown Salon. The scale and space of the island makes it possible then for these programs of definition to become particularly intensive. But islands were never totally bounded, and that's important to kind of highlight, because people kind of keep crossing back and forth um, in India and Sri Lanka, for instance, in this period. As migrants go across the strait, uh, it's impossible for the island to be a totally closed container. But maybe it's possible to argue that it's this program of making islands and yet being unable to fully make them separable and unitary in their political status or cultural cohesion, which explains some of the problems one continues to see in them. That kind of act of you know, wanting to make something which is a unit and which is centralized um, and which is indigenous, fully indigenous, but not being able to, uh, wanting to do that, but not being able to kind of fulfill that, that tension is really critical for some of the problems that then arise. Uh, time to island hop again um, and to Tasmania. Uh, and if you remember, my kind of headings were um, uh, here for Tasmania, island total war. Tasmania, um, and here's Tasmania again. Um, so with Sri Lanka, um, I have argued that we see the articulation of race in virulent form um, on an island space. And if that's so, what happens here is the next step in the process um, for islands uh, in this age at the end of the 18th century uh, and at the early 19th century. For Tasmania sees all-out war and war crimes of a kind, for some historians, uh, war crimes that stand up with the worst uh, in human history. Now, of course, this war is tied up in part with race and, and gender, too, because this is a program of settlement colonialism, wanting to settle the land and to settle a land which is deemed not to have settled residents, only nomadic residents. So you have nomadic residents, and so because of that, the land can be taken over um, for uh, the purpose of settlement. Again, there's a sort of direct connection to the broader global story of the Age of Revolutions um, in the way that Tasmania is uh, consolidated as a British colony, um, for we have fears of the French annexing this island, um, and the fact that you know, if the French annex this island, it's very close to New South Wales, which has recently been established, and that that just would not work. It's even a, a race to plant a flag, a British flag, on Tasmania, and the race is, um, with, uh, is, uh, is led by an expedition sent out of Sydney, Port Jackson, 
uh, in the period um, across to Tasmania, uh, and it's racing against a French exploratory mission uh, of Baudin, the explorer. So one of the um, driving factors in the brutal Tasmanian Wars, which then happen you know, 20 years later in the 1820s, um, and which sees the hunting down of uh, Aboriginal peoples, and in turn, retaliatory violence directed against settlers is still consistent with this broader kind of gl global moment because it's partly about the arrival of retired army um, and navy officers of the Napoleonic Wars and other refugees of this period who come and settle um, what's called in the period Van Diemen's Land. So one could argue that it's a sort of incubator for settlement colonialism, the island of Tasmania. Um, and the island, the fact that it's an island, is really, really important for what unfolds because it's presented as lush and fertile, um, having the best water in this part of the world, um, something very different to the mainland of Australia uh, in terms of its landscape. Um, and then the fact that it is an island means that the people can be rounded up in this period and taken off to another island, which is Offit, Flinders Island, where most of them eventually meet their death. And the rounding up of these Aboriginal peoples benefits from, again, the geography of the island in the fact that there's a sort of a chain, um, a so-called black line, which is the sort of settlers creating a chain to round uh, the Aboriginal Tasmanians up before their deportation uh, to Flinders Island. Here's a, a, a proclamation board uh, from 1830 aimed uh, to sort of highlight a message of conciliation, uh, very much a kind of propagandist image, um, but um, to be put up on trees uh, for indigenous peoples uh, to read it. So unlike with Sri Lanka, the sources for this history are very much colonial. Uh, there are some, there are indigenous sources which, which, which uh, one can use and one can go to kind of oral historical records uh, of a later period. But what I, want, what I want to do really here is to use a series of sketchbooks um, from the Mitchell Library uh, to give you a sense of the kinds of elisions, the, the kinds of connections across projects uh, which are apparent in this period in Tasmania. And these are the sketchbooks of Thomas Scott, who arrives in Hobart in 1820. And he's appointed assistant surveyor by Governor Macquarie uh, of Sydney. Scott goes about exploring uh, the island and producing a series of maps. Uh, he searches for coal uh, in the 1820s, 1826, produces a detailed survey of South Tasmania together with the cross section of a cliff where he thinks the coal, uh, uh, where the best source of coal uh, might be. Um, and it's just interesting to see the kinds of things which he puts in his sketchbook. So we have, we have waterfalls uh, in the midst of rolling hills. We have panoramic views of bays. We have fish of various kinds, uh, a poisonous toadfish, uh, an unnamed fish caught in the River Tema on the 24th of June, 1833, a shovel-nosed shark, um, and then this sort of line of porpoise jumping up across the water, across the horizon. So it's a sort of interest in natural history that one sees in these images, and that's a sort of starting point, uh, if you like. But then they go into flags. He's obsessed with flags of ships around Tasmania, 
a Belgian flag, an American flag, a flag of Hamburg, a Netherlands flag, etc., etc. And so one could say that the detective work with nature goes together with the detective work surrounding kind of foreign interests, the different powers that might come into Tasmania, um, or the different kind of connections. Uh, that can be made in Tasmania, right? So the kind of pr the, the project of making this an English colony being under threat to some extent. And then, of course, we get uh, the horrors of the Tasmanian Wars. Uh, we have Scott himself asked to collect information on, quote, the baselines of communication through the forests used by Aboriginal Tasmanians and to provide this information. Uh, to military and police officers involved in the Black Line of 1830. One of his notebooks, um, and I don't have this image, I don't think, casts the Aboriginal peoples into a natural state. The sequence goes like this, and I think it's a really important sequence. You have um, the Aboriginal people sitting around a fire. Then you have a man, uh, an Indigenous man, spearing a kangaroo. And then the Indigenous people are substituted with dogs attacking a kangaroo. And so what you get is the sort of idea that this contest is really a contest in a natural setting and is in keeping with uh, the natural setting of uh, all the kind of fights of the animal kingdom. We have various huts, and here are two various kind of slips. A hut which is burnt down by an indigenous person, which is uh, the hut of a settler, and then the hut of someone who's shot dead by a bushranger, an escaped convict. We also have jumps of other kinds. We have you know, frontier conflicts, the Afghan war map mapped out, and other island settings across Southeast Asia. So international conflict as intertwined with the fate of Tasmania. Now, the reason why I've kind of dwelt on this is because I think it reveals the sort of interweavings, if you like, of the colonial imagination. The romantic and the picturesque uh, at the start, uh, the colonial and the military with a comparative perspective on frontiers, um, and the indigenous and the animal. And it's precisely those elisions and connections which were intensified on islands, and Tasmania is a really tragic instance of the results that could ensue. But in the wake of the taking of islands came not only this program of decimation of non-European peoples, we also have, in fact, the opposite, the arrival of huge numbers of non-European peoples into island places in the Indian Ocean, for instance. And here, uh, it's important to turn to Singapore, the island of free trade. Because here we have migrants, traders, and laborers of all kinds arriving. And it's, relevant, it's important to juxtapose a source like this, which is a colonial source, which something, with something which is more indigenous in closing our travels. Let me introduce a Malay elite scribe who was working for the British. His name was Abdullah bin Abdul Qadir. Dates, uh, his dates uh, were 1797 to 1854. And 
Abdullah works as a language teacher alongside missionaries and other foreigners in Singapore. He travels constantly between Singapore and Malacca up the coast to visit his family, and he dies in Mecca in 1854 while undertaking the Hajj. And this is a, sort of a really important source um, for the history of Singapore, the Hikayat Abdullah, story of Abdullah, which is completed in manuscript in 1843 in Singapore. And what I want to kind of dwell on is his account of the steamship. Because the steamship sort of coming into these waters at this point in time um, and really changing them, um, but also making it possible for huge numbers of people to travel uh, across the Indian Ocean. So he says, well, he found it very difficult to believe in the steamship. But then a visual proof arrived, an image arrived of the steamship. Um, and then he came uh, to a much firmer idea that this was possible, or an even absolute assurance is the phrase that he use, uses. But his friends ridiculed him for magnifying the prowess of the English and telling them the most impossible things. The next step was actually to visit a steamship, and he visited a, sh a ship called the Sesotris, uh, which was involved uh, in the Opium Wars uh, in China and which was in Singapore uh, in the early 1840s. And then what he does, is at the invitation of a missionary, Alfred North, who's an American missionary, he actually writes a Malay text on the steamship. And it's really interesting, because he uses what he already knows to come to terms with this novel thing, uh, the steamship. He writes that the fire on the steamship does not, arise, does not arise from wood, like that used by Malays for fire. Quote, the coal looks like a rock or a stone, shiny, hard, and as if it were removed from the ground or from the mountains. The ship itself seemed to have a speed like that pulled by six to 700 horses on land. He noted that its cannonballs were as big as his head. And it perhaps sort of ultimate indicator of how he placed this new thing, this new machine in the context of what he already knew, he described the ship as a gift bestowed by Allah upon man for his thought and enterprise. So in other words, Abdullah came to full knowledge very slowly, step by step. The evolution of his mental universe is evident in this process. And he used what he knew already to come to terms with the new. At the same time, however, he was very sort of skeptical or worried about the newness of this time in Singapore with the arrival of all of these people and with these new forms of trade, which were being conducted by outsiders, orchestrated in part, in fact, by the steamship. Singapore was becoming this sort of booming island port halfway between India and China for the British. So we can turn to his Malay poem um, on New Year's Day, uh, which was published in 1848. It's not really a simple account of merriment. It's a pointed critique of commercialism, the commercialism of the New Year celebrations. It's writing of sack races uh, for the first two verses there. Now, there was another curious thing. People were going into sacks in pairs for the sake of money. They were willing to put up with anything. So they hopped slowly on each and every one of them. It ain't easy trying to get 
the orang put his white man's money. You're done in until your body is weary and worn, while your sweat perspires like beads of grain. Thus people rose and fell upon each other. So we've got to imagine um, the coast or the sort of shore of Singapore, the seafront, uh, and people doing these races and the colonial masters watching. Uh, these in progress, and actually kind of tossing, he actually writes this, tossing coins, English tossing coins, uh, to the people doing the races who are indigenous peoples or Asians. Um, and given the location of uh, these races, Abdullah continues, the uproar thundered like a storm. Young, old, small, large, went all a-grabbing, falling and rising on the grass. Some had their clothes torn, some had their hair rent askew. So for this Muslim free trade consumption, free trade is a sort of mantra that the British are using in this period, had tainted the joys of sport and entertainment. It had generated an excess, brought about a race, allowing people to become uncivil. So this was the end, end story for some islands uh, in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. The rise of ports, the arrival of steam, the advent of huge numbers of migrants and merchants here in Singapore from South and East Asia. Uh, Singapore becomes a sort of hinge of the Indian Ocean. Thousands of ships are passing through it by the middle of the century. And in fact, it's colonized by the British from 1819 onwards as an experiment in the idea of a free port. It becomes part of a network of free ports along the Malay coast, which are called the Straits Settlements. So the island of Singapore, and I'm kind of going on about the kind of form of the island here and the specificity of the island. Of course, these things are happening more widely, but the argument here is that the island actually, as a, as a space, intensifies the modern project. So the island Singapore, from its first formation, is envisaged as a port, a stepping stone. It's a very instrumental view of a place, of a land. It's always a location on the way somewhere else. And so it's in that context that all of these people are passing through. And that's how it contrasts with the annihilation of indigenous peoples in Tasmania. Both come out of the same empire and from the strategic and utilitarian significance of islands, yet they're different outworkings, tied to settlement colonialism and transshipment at a port. The endpoint of the Age of Revolutions and 1848, actually, the date of this is a really good endpoint in some ways, um, is a sort of neutralization of unrest in this program of commerce, settlement, and technological change as globalization spreads its paths across these seas and as the 19th century goes on. So as a retrospect on this moment in the history of the world and the significance of islands, um, what I want to do is to just um, play you a short clip from a film um, from 1935, which is uh, a bit of a gem, The Song of Ceylon, uh, and it's produced by the British Colonial Film Archive, um, and it's produced uh, by Basil Wright with the assistance uh, of a Sri Lankan uh, whose name is Lionel Went. Uh, it's from... Uh, yeah, it's 1935. And what one can see is some of the kind of echoes of the story that I've kind of already told you. One can see um, tradition, one can see spirituality, one can see indigenous custom, but they're all packaged 
and this is the way it was interpreted at the time, increasingly squeezed by the modern, um, by the technologies of modernity, by the sounds of modernity, uh, and even you know, the sort of measurements and tabulations of modernity, which we have been speaking about uh, in this uh, uh, over the last 40 minutes or so. So let's see whether this works. In reply to Dear sirs, with reference to our conversation, 22 pounds, 17 and sixpence, 7 pounds, 9 and a penny, to acknowledge receipt, 40 rupees, 75 cents, 55 rupees, 2 cents, we beg to inform you that the consignment to which you refer, 78 dollars, 30 cents, UFOB London, per SS Comarin, sailing 25th instant. Yours faithfully. Yours faithfully. Yours faithfully. Toulon, Naples, Portside, Suez, Aden, Colombo. steady at yesterday's higher prices. Salon FMS November to five ports quoted ten pounds seven shillings and Hello? sixpence. Sellers CIF. Speaking. Oh, Gregson here. About those blueprints for the new factory. Oh yes. As a matter of fact, I was just going to send them along. There are one or two alterations I want you to look over. All right, I'll do it as soon as I get them. We're in rather a hurry, you know. Yes, of course, I understand that, but you must realize... Gambler Valley, 42.6, East India and Salon, 23. Ditto, 6%, preference, 28 and 6. Euralia, 83, one and a half, Yeti and Tot, 16, four and a half, seven and a half, six and a half, Carolina, one, seven, eight. Lors de ces cette semaine, on a monté à 80 400 kilos. 
compétition a été bonne à la France de Manchester et les deux latins sont maintenus. Les wöchentliche Lieferung von Zeile und Tee, die 22.000 Euro, Today's commodity prices. Tea. The week's offering of salon grades, amounting to 22,100 packages, came up for auction. Competition was generally good and prices regular. Common and low-medium broken orange picos were a farthing to a halfpenny higher in some instances, while broken picos also showed a similar rise. Good medium sorts and fannings continued firm, and where quality was good realized higher prices. Clean, common, broken pico quoted 11 pence farthing to one shilling per pound. Great. Um, so that gives you a sense of the island, if you will, um, around 1930. I've been speaking very much about the island um, of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean uh, up to about 1850. And so the question Im immediately arises of what of uh, island societies and cultures today um, at a time of climate change um, climate refugees, and environmental extinction. Well, I'm not a historian who writes on the contemporary world, but I do write to address the contemporary world. And so the kind of claim which I want to leave you with, and which I'm happy to sort of discuss, is that the course of islands in some ways runs ahead. Um, runs ahead of the rest of the world. Um, and so it did so with the modern project. Uh, it was a sort of indicator of what was to come. Uh, and if so, it really is a site to watch. It's a set of places to watch, uh, even uh, as we work out how the modern project may end. Thank you very much. So we have 10 minutes um, for questions. Um, I'm very happy to answer questions. We've got 10, 10 minutes, exactly. Uh, yes, so I think I'm supposed to say... Um, we'll follow the person with the mic. Stand up. Okay. Hi. Um, I wonder, do you think what you've talked about on the islands is more a microcosm of developments and tensions in the Atlantic world, um, or do you think what was happening on those islands was more of kind of a precursor or almost influenced how they then developed in the modern world, if you get what I'm saying? So was yeah. it a microcosm and a reflection, or did, did it actually influence it? Yeah, so the Caribbean context is really, really interesting, and the Atlantic context, too. Um, I think the kind of, the, as a historian, I should say that the periodization is different, so um, things happen slightly at a different point uh, in the Atlantic in terms of plantation societies. 
Um, a traditional way to explain this is to say that um, Europe loses out in the Atlantic world, and then it moves into the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. But more recently, people are saying that, in fact, that's an oversimplification, and that the two things happen side by side, and that there are people, you know, Indian indentured laborers, for instance, are sent to the Caribbean, um, plantations in Mauritius, which ha have the impact of, you know, developments in the Caribbean, and so forth. And so to actually kind of partition off the Atlantic world from the Indian Ocean world and the Pacific Ocean world in relation to what happens when, where, uh, is too simplistic. Uh, another way to think about it is that actually the geography of the Atlantic world is different um, to the Indian Ocean world and the Pacific Ocean world. In the Pacific, um, a really important uh, writer, Epele Haofa, uses the concept of a sea of islands. The idea that it's very kind of archipelagic in a sense, so kind of collections of islands spread right across this vast expanse of sea um, where there is a long-standing um, historical memory about contact across the wide expanse uh, of the Pacific. Uh, in the Indian Ocean, too, there are kind of accounts of these voyages right across uh, the Indian Ocean conducted from the Middle East, uh, from China, from Asia, uh, and so on. So the, the, the long-term history of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean distinguishes it actually from the Atlantic, and historians sometimes say that the Atlantic is defined in a way uh, by Europe, much more so, uh, whereas Europe cannot totally define the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean because of these long-running um, histories of navigation. Um, so those are some ways in which one could kind of approach the contrast uh, between these different ocean basins. Somebody here. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on the uh, Burmese and Australian practices with respect to the refugees, the Rohingyan, and all the other refugees from Australia sequestered in Indonesia. Uh, yeah, so I don't work on uh, the refugee crisis at the moment. What, what, what I was trying to suggest is that the kind of issue, um, the problem of migration has been a kind of long-running one. Um, and I do write on Burma, um, but in this earlier period. Um, and actually, one way to kind of use the lecture to speak to the Rohingya kind of crisis is to say that what is happening in Sri Lanka with respect to ethnicity is tied up very much with what goes on in Burma, because both are Theravada Buddhist societies where there are kingdoms in the interior which are challenged by Britain. Now, in Sri Lanka, it's an island, and so the whole island can be taken over, but in Burma, Myanmar, uh, that doesn't happen. It's actually kind of you know, sliced across three wars right across the 19th century. But through those wars, there's a sort of developing sense of ethnicity of what it means to kind of be Myanmar. Um, and then, of course, the exclusion uh, of other groups. And so, one could say that the present crisis has a very long-term kind of history, and I would say that because I work in an earlier period. Um, other historians would say that it's tied up with decolonization, with you know, partition uh, in India, and so forth. But regardless of the kind of point of view one takes, it's certainly clear that state-making and ethnicity uh, have been tied up uh, in this region. Um, and, um, of course, you know, the issue to do with uh, the Rohingya also has repercussions in Sri Lanka in relation to Buddhist-Muslim conflict. And so it's not a kind of particular, it's actually a story that one could generalize uh, across this world. Uh, and so methodologically, that's what I would do with it. Um, yeah, so that's as much as I can do to help with the question as a historian of an earlier time.
Oh, okay, yep. Apparently my mic has gone. Uh, do you think history has any lessons for us in how the modern world should react to islands like the Sentinelese in the Indian Ocean? Uh, sorry, who in the Indian Ocean? I dismissed that. The Sentinelese Islands, which I understand are populated by some people who appear to be of African origin who may have been there undisturbed for about 60,000 years, is the estimate. Well, just leave, I mean, leave, them, <laughs> leave them to be, I suppose. I mean, I mean the, the issue here partly has been about capitalism, globalization, imperialism coming in um, and um, kind of taking over islands um, for a whole series of experiments. Um, and so I guess we should allow a plural kind of futures as much as possible uh, from this point in time. Um, because uh, if islands have been sort of, you know, folded into programs of modernization and globalization, uh, it's always been to their cost. Uh, do you think that the earlier interaction of uh, Viking, Roman, or Norman uh, intervention in this country, uh, this island, supports your hypothesis? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that, that too, you know as much as <laughs> I do because I don't work on that period uh, of uh, British history. But I guess I was hoping that people would read the lecture for Britain um, over the long term because uh, one of the things I was highlighting was how it's it, kind of, it's perennial to want to sort of, you know, partition off an island from the rest of the world. Um, and yet, practically, that's always really, really difficult. Um, and that tension between intent and what actually kind of results generates some of the problems. So to kind of speak from Sri Lanka, um, you could argue that this intervention in the late 18th, early 19th century uh, then generates a kind of a capillary of ethnicity that reverberates down and which we haven't got around because it feeds into uh, the civil war uh, in Sri Lanka. So it's how one, I mean, I suppose if one reflects on that point, then how one goes about actually telling or opening up a different story, uh, which is more plural, um, and also recognizing that migrations and interventions have always been you know, features of island cultures, uh, given their geographical placement. I think we've got two more minutes, if anybody's got a question. Yeah, there's somebody over there. Um, I was wondering if previously you think that islands have been used by colonial powers uh, as a testing ground or a laboratory for uh, things and systems that prefigure things that have happened later on, where you see uh, that being initiated now, where perhaps islands might be more autonomous? Uh, yeah, so I guess kind of environmental kind of, um, that's a very good question actually. Um, I guess one could think about environmental change, really. So not necessarily uh, direct. I mean, of course, there are instances of direct colonialism. But in fact, the results of globalization and informal forms of colonialism are in environmental senses uh, today. Uh, or the setting up of you know, uh, refugee centers uh, on islands uh, is, is another way in which we can, uh, we can see this. Um, or um, uh, you know, an insistence on uh, cultural purity um, in islands 
to uh, feeding into uh, warfare at times, actually, again, uh, in a post-colonial um, setting, nevertheless, but in keeping with this colonial history. So, so places, so those sorts of features, those sorts of characteristics might be ones to watch um, and might be, you know, troubling features for us to sort of meditate on uh, if we want to draw lessons out um, from history. Great, I think, um, well, thank you very much. It's been really uh, wonderful to hear from you as well and to hear your responses. And I will be uh, at the, uh, the bookshop uh, if you do want to come and talk to me there as well. And thank you uh, for being such an engaged audience. <laughs>